Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are good. And I pray, please, that we would see your goodness tonight. Please speak through me. More importantly, please speak through your word. I pray that it would be changing us. I pray that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, please, that tonight people would understand uh, the good news that we have in Jesus and be, be saved by putting their trust in Jesus. And I pray, please, that tonight we would be changed to be more like Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, do you guys feel like um, this is a crazy time to be a Christian? Uh, a crazy period in history? After this um, court case I'm sure you heard about in America that made gay marriage legal, I got an email from this old guy and he was freaking out that Christian society was falling apart. And I, um, I wrote back just a really short email where I just said, I don't think that society's ever really been Christian and I don't think the Bible leads us to expect that it ever will be Christian because the guy that God sent got killed. I don't think society will ever really follow God and since we follow the guy that got killed, I think we don't have a very good chance of being popular either. And actually when you look at the first Christians, in ancient Rome, I was learning this week, um, Pedophilia was pretty normal. Infant killing was pretty normal. Um, and even eventually, Christian killing was pretty normal. Is there anything I can do about that? You guys will work it out. Um, so compared to when this letter was written, actually things today aren't that bad. But still, a lot of the things that Christians believe are crazy. They have a bad smell to our society. The world says that everyone's basically a good person. The Bible says that everyone's a sinner. The world says all paths lead to God, all religions are right. The Bible says, actually, no, some things are true and some things aren't. They can't all be true, and only Jesus is the one that can save people. The world thinks that women have a right to have an abortion. The Bible says the baby has a right not to be killed. The world says gay marriage is okay. The Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. This world says that this life is all there is. The Bible says death is not the end. The world says do whatever you want in life. And the Bible says you are created for a purpose. So we believe unpopular things. Also, Christians walk differently. We say no to underage drinking. We say no to sex before marriage. We, we say no to swearing. And yet with all of this going on, Jesus says, love your neighbor. And the main message that we've got is this. It's that God so loved the world, that he sent his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we're called to live lives of love and we've got this message about God's love, but how do we show that love and also believe and do things that our culture finds frankly offensive? In other words, how do we live as Christians in a culture that doesn't believe? And I'm really glad that we're reading the book of 1 Peter this term because it's all about this. How do we live as Christians against the tide? Like a fish swimming upstream. And um, actually, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, maybe you're like, yeah, it is crazy to be a Christian. Well, we're not going to be able to cover um, everything that 1 Peter says about this tonight because it's got five chapters of stuff to say about this. So this term, that's a big part of what we're going to be looking at. But tonight we're going to see kind of the big ticket item where he starts, how to live as a Christian against the tide. But I want to point out something really strange about the passage that Mitch read for us. Can we get this slide up on screen? This is really weird, okay? See the bits I got in yellow there? 
There are four big instructions. Now, if you're here for the first time tonight, you might not see why that's so weird. You might actually assume that's what the Bible's always like. But it's not. If you've got a Bible in front of you or someone near you does, good. You should bring it so you can see if what I'm saying is true. Look at the first half of this chapter. How many commands, how many instructions are in the first half of this chapter? Try and find one. There isn't one. Up until this point in this letter, Peter has had no interest at all in telling you what to do. It's all been about what God has done. That's what verse 3 is about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And so that's why this section we've come to is so weird. It's weird because it's so practical. And I think it's really important to notice that it starts with a therefore. All of God's commands start with a therefore. Because this is built on what we saw last week. It's all because of what God has done for us. You've got to get the order right if you want to understand Christianity. Religion says do X and then maybe God will do Y. Jesus, Christianity says God has already given you X in Jesus and so now you get to do Y. You've got to get the order right. The hope on, of heaven that we were frothing on last week It's not something that you can get by doing the things in this passage. It's something that God gives you through faith in Jesus. And if you've got faith in Jesus, you've got it tonight. And if you don't have faith in Jesus, you can get it tonight. And having got that from God as a gift, therefore, you do these things. All the do's of the Christian life are built on a really big, solid done. And it's a bit like um, having a big safety net. Um, when I was little, we went up to Byron Bay and there was this trapeze thing there. I don't know if it's still there. And you could like swing from... There, there were these pretty good trapeze artists there and they would like grab you and they'd throw you between each other. And that was pretty fun. Um, and you're doing these crazy things that you would never do normally. But there was this net underneath, okay? And that safety net meant that I wasn't scared And I could do these things. Religion is like, you've got to make this trapeze thing, but there's no safety net. And if you don't make it, you're stuffed. That's religion. Christianity says God has saved you. There's a safety net. His forgiveness. You can always come back to it. And so now you get to try to follow him. It's so freeing. And so Peter, having given us this big picture of God's insanely great future, this indestructible future that we've got, now Peter wants to tell them, how to live. We saw in verse 1, they're strangers in society, scattered through the world. In verse 17 here, it says, uh, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here. So it's talking about living as Christians in a society where you don't really fit in because your home is heaven. And so this world feels strange. And maybe even these guys have also been scattered from their actual physical homes because of persecution for being Christians. So how do you live as Christians in a hostile society? Well, there's um, four big commands in this. Um, the Greek is, is clearer because the Greek is different than the English and it's hard to get the sentences right. The NIV breaks up the sentences a bit, but it's really clear in the, in the Greek. We'll go to the next slide that there are four big commands here. Number one, set your hope. In other words, it's something to do with your mind. 
And that's the power that you need to live in a hostile society. Secondly, holiness. Be holy because your dad, your father in heaven, God, is holy. So you've got your mind, how you should think, and then you've got how you should act in a hostile society. You're saying, God is holy. My dad in heaven is holy. He's pure. He's different. There's no corruption in him. There's no darkness in him. And in fact, chapter 2, verse 3 that we had read out says that the Lord is good. That's holy. Holy is unlike anything that you will find in a school playground. Holiness means being prepared to be like God no matter what anyone else is doing. It's like um, allergy-free food. There's just not even a trace of sin. That's holiness. And no matter what happens, this passage is saying, as you live in this society that's against you, don't compromise your holiness. Lots of things might be grey. When should I speak about Jesus? When should I? Lots of things have that, but one thing doesn't have grey. Be holy. But you've got to remember, this is our response to what God's already done, which is great, because when we're not holy, that's not it. It's not over. There's forgiveness, and then you keep trying to be holy. So that's number two. Number three, there's a hug. I just need another word that started with H. Hope, holy, hug, and hungry. Um, but really, it's more than a hug. It's, it's love one another. Um, the Christian community. It says love one another. So lots of parts of the Bible say love everybody, but this one says love one another, and he's writing to Christians, and it's, there's two reasons, I think. Number one, it demonstrates the change that Jesus brings in you. And that change, as, you, as we love each other, it should be different to what you can find in any other place other than a Christian place, and that should attract people to the gospel. People should say, I don't know what you've got, but I want it. Number two, though, it's also so that we support each other like penguins huddling from the Arctic vortex. Yeah, penguins, when it's really cold, they just get together. I'm not saying that we huddle and don't ever hang out with anyone who's not a Christian, but I am saying that love each other is the support that we need when society is against us. And so this place should be the place where we warm each other spiritually by loving each other. Because, verse 23 says, we're born again, and that we're born again with all the same Father, so we're all family. So that's number three. And number four there, be hungry um, for God's word. It uses the word there, crave. Crave is when you drive past McDonald's after a football game, and you're just so hungry. Crave is when you're on a school camp, and you haven't had a shower all week, and more probably girls feel this than boys. You, but I feel as well, you crave a shower. Sometimes a bath, except it's been a long time since I fit in a bath. Um, crave, long. And Peter gives us an example of it in verse 2. If you've got your Bibles there, he's talking about babies. And babies crave milk. And so he's saying, we've been born again. We have a new spiritual life. If you've become a Christian, the Holy Spirit's come in you. There's been a change. There's a new life in you, and so in that sense, you're like a baby. You've just been born, and so there's something that we should crave, and he calls it their pure spiritual milk, which is a bit weird. What's our spiritual milk? Well, it's what he's just been talking about in verse 25, which I didn't write the verse there, verse number there. But anyway, you got in your Bibles. Verse 25 is the word that was preached to you. In other words, the word of God. He's saying, be hungry for the word of God. Now, if you got this, it would mean you'd make a decision never to miss G-Team, where you get to study the Word of God with other Christians loving one another. You'd have to be in a hospital to miss G-Teams. It would mean opening your Bible every day if you got this. We spend so much time on schoolwork, 
And I know I've taught a lot of teenagers who are like, I'm busy. And I'll tell you, it doesn't get less busy as life goes on. And I know you're busy. I was there. But would it hurt that much to take 10 minutes from studying human words and spend 10 more minutes studying God's words? Verse 2 there says that it will help you to grow up into your salvation. Grow up and, and be all that God has saved you to be. So there's the big picture that Peter's laying out. How do you live as a Christian in society? Well, he's covered your mindset, hope. He's covered your actions, holiness. He's covered your community, love, hug. And he's covered your food, God's word. There's the big picture of how to live as a Christian in society. But there's one of them that I want to dwell on for the rest of our time and apply to us. And it's the one that reminds me of High School Musical. Okay? Has anyone seen it? It's getting a bit old now, I think. Um, I have sisters. That's my excuse for why I've watched it, but I can't explain why I've watched it twice. Um, We'll go next slide. But I guess... um, (laughs) I guess I kind of enjoyed a little bit, the movie. Does anyone remember the scene, got to get your head in the game? It's been a long time since I watched this movie. I can't remember it all, except I remember that there is a scene called Get Your Head in the Game. But any person who's played sports in this room understands the difference that your mindset makes. You understand that actually before you play a sporting game, it helps to get your head in the game. It helps to go, wait, what are we trying to do here? What's the goal Who's on my team? Like, what am I prepared to put on the line? It helps to get your thinking right. And that's actually what Peter's saying as well. Um, it's where Peter starts. He's given, how crazy is this? He's given a lot, of chap- a lot of the chapter is about what God's done for us. Therefore, what's the first thing that he says to do? He says, get your head in the game. That's the first thing. Look at verse 13. Therefore, we'll go to the next slide. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So this is a command, right? The command there is what? Set your hope, but it's got some tips of how to do it, okay? The first tip there is minds that are alert. Now, um, the, the expression that's actually under that is literally... Gird up the loins of your mind, okay? And I understand why they didn't translate that way, because you'd be like, what's a loin? It's what you think it is. Um, And literally it's saying, put a belt on in your mind. Get ready. It's like, uh, put your shoes on and do them up in your mind. Because that was you can't run like that first picture there, but you can like the second picture. That's what they did. When they went into battle, they girded up the loins. An older NIV translation said... Prepare your minds for action. Put your shoes on in your mind, I guess you say. Now, it does surprise me that Peter's first place that he starts is with the way that you think. Conclusion, your mind matters to God. Your mind matters to God. That doesn't surprise us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to have good theology, your understanding of God. It's why it's important that you keep growing in your understanding of the Bible because 
God cares about the way you think. And also, the reason Peter's bringing it up here is it affects the way that you live. I don't know if you've ever heard our church called a head church. EV, that's the head church. I want to say good, because your mind matters to God. But I also want to say, let us also be the heart church and the hand church, because we worship a God who made the whole person hand, heart, and head. But it's good to be thinking, because... Your mind matters to God. The second thing he says there is to be alert with minds that are alert. Um, And that's what he's saying. Gird up your your loins, your mind. Get your head in the game. And then he says, being fully sober. Now, sober, you might know the word. Like there's drunk and then there's sober. He's talking here about more than just drunkenness. Okay, It's not like the first thing he thinks of is alcohol. No. Um, But I reckon it actually does, before we move on from that, Say something about alcohol. If you are drunk as a Christian, can you have your head in the game? You can't. And a good way to know if you've had too much to drink when you get older or for the leaders who are listening here is has, this, has the amount that I've had to drink started to affect how clearly I can think as a Christian? Is it now harder for me to choose to be holy like we've already seen? That's the stopping point. Alcohol's not wrong. Jesus turned water into wine. It is wrong underage because he said obey the authorities. But be sober, it says there, when you can drink. But I think sober has a bigger meaning. It it means being sensible. It means being well-balanced. It means being in control of yourself. And I know that that's hard for teenagers because you've got hormones. But it comes up a lot in the book of 1 Peter and in the rest of the Bible. And so I'll say this to you, and some of you guys need to hear this right now. As Christians, we don't want to be driven by our desires, our emotions, like some five-year-old kid. We want to be conscious of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Intentionality. So this means not letting our, our... sin or our, our kind of just desires get the better of us, but instead being, being governed by our conscious mind, our rational mind. And it's the opposite of Disney, because Disney says, what? Follow your heart, listen to your heart. That is a terrible idea, because the Bible says your heart is deceitful above all things. God changes us, Romans 12 says, by the renewing of our mind. The way that God will grow you is by by Speaking words that that you understand with your mind changes the way you think. And if you want to live a transformed life, that will then show. Because you'll think differently. It starts with your mind. And so, guys, the, the key to the Christian life, if you want to grow in it, keep in mind what you know about God, what you know about eternity, what you know about what he wants, and then let that drive what you decide day to day, minute to minute. If you're not sure what to do, why don't you start with the things we've already talked about? Hope, holy, hug, and hungry. But actually, the main thing that here he says that we should set our, our minds on is what? Hope. He tells them to set their hope on the grace that's to come. Now, we talked about hope last week. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. It's not just a hope that girl will... Say yes when I ask her out. I hope that tomorrow it's not raining so I can play footy. That is a hope, but the Bible's use of the word hope is a confident one. 
not a wishful thinking one. And I think we can set our hopes on all sorts of things. When I was a teenager, you know, you might think, um, I'll be happy. There you go. There's my hope. I'll be happy when? Finish that sentence for yourself. What was that? Yeah, well, okay, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> I know what you mean. You're giving an example. That's good. I'll be happy when? What, what's your answer to that in your question? I'll be happy when? Oftentimes for me, it's I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when this new thing is released. Didn't catch it, but good. Whatever your answer to that question is, I'll be happy when... That's what your hope is set on. And it could be a lot of different things. Or the other alternative is you can have no hope. Well, this verse says three things. It says, number one, don't have no hope. Guys, come on. Don't have no hope. Number two, don't hope in the wrong things. Number three, have your hope fully on something that is the grace to be brought to you. When Jesus is revealed. So there's something in the future that's coming to you when Jesus comes back, and that's what your hopes to be on. Now I want to talk to you here if you're not a Christian. You can have hope. You can have something good in the future that you can confidently look forward to. The way you get it is in Jesus, and it calls it there grace. Do you see that word there? Grace. The word grace means gift. And I want to say, what would Peter have meant if he had called it a reward or earnings. If he'd said, set your hope fully on your earnings when Jesus comes back. Why does he say grace? Why does he use the word gift? It's because everywhere in the Bible, it's clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10 says, For it is by grace you've been saved, by a gift you've been saved, through faith. This is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. He doesn't call it the thing that you earn here. He calls it the thing that God gives you by grace. Heaven is not by works. Heaven is not by your effort. It's not by trying harder. It's not by being better. It's not by doing more good stuff. It's by grace. And if you're saying, well, if that's true, then why would anyone obey God? Then you're understanding it. That's exactly the question that people ask the first Christians. Some people in our society say, no, no, heaven's just for good people. In my opinion, it doesn't matter matter whether this makes sense to us. It doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't even matter what the Pope says. Look what God's Word says, the Bible. It's by grace. And that's such good news for me because I don't deserve heaven. I deserve hell. But by God's grace, I'm going to heaven. All the things that we talked about last week are bound up in this verse, a future that's insanely good. And a future that's indestructible, and it's all by grace. And so I want to say to the people here who aren't Christians, you can have this. This grace, this future. But this is written to Christians, right? So it's saying, set your hope, but it's written to people who already have this hope. What's going on there? Well, Oregon tells us something. It tells us that it's possible to be a Christian and yet not live with hope. In other words, in your minds... We forget. It also means this, and I reckon this is going to change the way you think. So listen to this. It is possible for you to choose hope. Track with me on this one. A lot of people in our society will tell us that your feelings are completely out of your control. 
It's like there's this tug of war in our mind between our thoughts and our feelings, and we're just getting knocked around by them. And you're like, man, I hope my feelings get sorted out so I can choose some stuff to, you know, I hope I'm just out of control. That's what people feel. Think about how much Satan would want you to believe that. God says in his word, be thankful. But if you believe that, you'll say, I can't. I don't feel thankful. There's nothing more I can do. God says, love. You're like, I can't. I don't. Satan wants you to believe this. But I think, is God telling us here to do something nonsense? Is he saying, set your hope, but there's no way you can? Three out of the four commands in this passage, hope, love, and crave, have to do with your feelings. I don't necessarily mean your emotions. I more mean your attitudes, your desires. I think God is smarter than to tell us nonsense. And so I think there's two reasons why this passage tells you and I how we should feel. Number one, it's the power of God's word. Number two, it's because you actually can choose to hope. Here's number one. God's word is powerful in itself. True Christians have the Holy Spirit, God himself living in them. And what happens when God's word is spoken to them is that the spirit in them kind of like lifts up his head. He's like, yeah, let's do it. And the spirit produces the thing that God's word is telling us to do. It's, um, God's word actually produces its own result. And so um, when it says hope, if you're listening to God's word, and you actually have to be listening, you can't just be letting it wash over you. But if you're listening, when God says hope, you hope. The Holy Spirit works in you. And that's why it's so important to crave pure spiritual milk. I also think as well on this that when Christians speak to each other God's word and things from God's word, the same sort of thing happens. And so right now, are you listening to God's word? It's saying, set your hope. Hope. There's a future ahead. Hope. Hope. And so I think Peter writes this to them and tells them to hope. I think we can follow his example a bit there and we can be speaking this sort of thing to each other. Now, I will say there are those infuriating friends who you're having a bad day and they just get on your nose because they're just like, cheer up, emo kid. Like, Not helpful. You can't just tell someone to cheer up, especially if you do it insensitively. But from Peter's example here, I think that there is a place for us to speak gently after we listen to people, after we show that we actually care for them, but also just gently to remind them. God's good. You've got a hope. So let's be doing that to each other and pointing. I love it when I get text messages from people with just like, hey, how good is it that, you know, or a verse or whatever. People put Instagram pictures with like Bible verses, and that's a reminder of hope. And I love it in conversations when people give me little reminders of hope. God is good. We've got a great future coming, don't we? Now, that's one of the reasons why Peter tells us to do this is because God's word actually produces something in us. But the second reason is because we can actually choose to hope. Underlying this passage is the assumption that you're not captive to your feelings. You can take charge with your mind and tell your feelings where to go. You can actually talk to yourself. In Psalm 42, David says to himself, hope in God. David's telling his own heart where to go. We sing a song and it does the same thing. You know the song, Arise My Soul Arise? That's doing the same thing. It's talking to your own soul and your own self and saying, get up, come on, lift your head, remember what we've got, it's good. I think what you focus on really matters. I've heard doctors say that depression is an illness of focus. If you always focus on the most negative thing, you will feel negative. 
And part of treating depression is helping people to learn not to always focus on the negative, but to focus. Here's a command from God. Focus your mind on the hope that we have. There's a Christian preacher called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We'll go to this slide. He was called doctor because he was a doctor, and then he became a preacher. Um, So I think he kind of brings the two together. Listen to this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take the thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? It's yourself talking to you. Now the treatment, he's writing this, by the way, based on Psalm 42, which I've mentioned. The man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to himself, he, instead of allowing his own feelings to talk to himself, he starts talking to himself. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. And he stands up and he says, self, listen to this for a moment, and I'm going to speak to you. You have to take yourself in hand. It's weird language what he's saying here, but it's good. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You have to say to yourself, why are you so sad? What's getting me upset? And then you must turn on yourself and encourage yourself and say to yourself, trust in God, hope in God, and instead of just muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you've got to go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God has done, what God has pledged to do to you in the future. And then when you've done that, at the end, finish with this. I'm still reading his stuff. Defy yourself, defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world and say with the guy in Psalm 42, I will praise God. I can't, he's using old English. I can't understand the last little bit. But I think that's good advice. Before your feet hit the floor in the morning, there's a battle going on in your mind about whether you will hope in God, whether you will trust God. So one way that we can sway our emotions is to do what Peter does all through this verse. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He then gives them reasons. And and he gives them basically facts about God that change the way people think. And so you might want to do that. You might want to Come back to this passage and use it to remind yourself. You might want to memorize verses. You might want to put reminders on post-it notes around your house. If you've got a pen, why don't you write the word hope on your hand so that when you forget, you look at it. Because what will happen, this is what happens to me, you'll catch yourself focusing on something else. Um, For me, it's complaining. I'm always complaining. Or I'm worrying. And I'm not saying in that moment to deny your feelings or suppress them. It's okay to acknowledge them. I am feeling this, that's okay. But when we notice that and we, can't, we notice, we should, say, we should say something to ourselves. We should say hope. We should say hope in God. Andrew, soul, if you like. Don't let this feeling take over you. Hope in God. Now, I think this is harder if you've had a mental illness or if you have one or if you have had a recent tragedy. And I'm, I think it's worth just saying, it's, it's, there's no point denying it, it is harder. If you find it harder for those reasons, don't beat yourself up. You're not a bad Christian. You've just got something that's that's hard. But I think that that makes this all the more important. If you're not going through a tragedy or a mental illness, I think now's the perfect time to learn this skill to be a bit more equipped for when it comes. I also want to say if you've got a problem with your body, you go see a doctor um, as well as praying to God to heal you. And I want to encourage you, if you have problems with your thinking, 
If there's things in your past, if there's depression, anxiety, unhelpful thoughts, recurring thoughts, it's good to see a psychologist. I've heard a pastor of a church in Sydney say there's two sorts of people in his church, people who have seen psychologists and people who should see psychologists. Um, And so I'm not saying that this passage is the advice that I would give um, you and and you should never see a doctor or anything. Sometimes you should see a GP and go to a a psychologist. But in the argy-bargy of life, in the bangs and the scrapes and the endurance race that is the Christian life, the power comes from having hope. And hope comes from choosing hope. It comes from setting your hope on what Jesus has in store for you eternally. So let me urge you, I'll finish with this. If you're a Christian, set your hope on the grace that is coming. We can be confident. Our future is based on something that happened in the past. Your resurrection will happen because Jesus' resurrection has happened. And this is the key to life in a world that's against us. And I've got a concern about our youth group. My concern is that we talk about such serious stuff, there's a danger that we could end up on a bit of a downer tone, if you know what I'm talking about. I've noticed that a lot of people sit with hunched over shoulders. Um, by the way, your posture affects how you feel. And maybe there's not much joy in the seeing. And sometimes it can all feel very serious. Good idea, good idea. There's a good thing about the fact that we take this stuff seriously because eternity, salvation, our relationship with God, it matters a lot. They are serious things. And in fact, in verse 13, the word sober could be translated serious. But we've also got to remember that it's supposed to be joyful. This passage talks about hope. Look at how the part we, we read ends, verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so I want to end on this. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Because I have. He is so good. He gave me hope. He gave me purpose. He gave me love. He gave me this family. He gave me himself. He taught me the truth. He opened my eyes. He forgave my sins and washed me clean and removed my feeling of guilt. He gave me his Holy Spirit who set me free from the patterns of sins that were hurting me. He gave me a hope, a certain future. I'm not scared of death. I will live eternally. And he's with me every day. I have tasted that the Lord is good. Three times in chapter 1, the word joyful is used. God's version of Christianity is not boring. If you do it right, there's nothing like it in the world. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's serious. And that's because it matters. But above all that, it has a hope and a joy that you just can't find in any of the empty ways of life, verse 17 says, that our society will give us. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, it is a crazy time to be a Christian. But if you zoom out and look at where all of history is going and the hope that is coming, I think you'd be crazy not to be a Christian. So let's prepare our minds for action. Let's be sober-minded. Let's choose hope. Let's remember that the Lord is good. Let's lift our chins up, put our shoulders back, lean forward into the Christian life because there is a grace coming, because Jesus is coming. And in the meantime, let's hope, be holy, hug, and be hungry. That's the key. The rest is details. Why don't we pray that God will do that for us? Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have. Help us to set our hope, our own minds and our own hope on it. Help us to be holy. 
Help us to love each other and help us to be hungry for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.